Welcome to Chase Oaks. Whether you're in person or watching online, we're so glad that you've joined us today. I don't know what type of music you listen to, but one of my all-time favorite genres is old-school hip-hop. So I mean like Run DMC, Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, I love that era of music. And I think hip-hop in general, more than any other type of music, tells us that if we have enough money or the right stuff, the right brands, then our life will be complete and we'll be happy. But is that really true? We all kind of know that money can't buy us happiness, but I don't know how many of us really believe it. I think we kind of want to test it out and we think, well, maybe money can buy happiness. Studies tell us what we already know, that stuff doesn't make us happy because of this theory called hedonic adaptation. And it just means that we get used to both positive and negative things and the emotional effects of, uh, the emotional effects of them lessen over time. So we can have a bunch of awesome stuff, the new job, the latest phone, the ideal house. We can have all those things, but the problem is those things stick around. They become our new normal and we get used to them and they don't bring us the satisfaction that we expect that it will. Or think of it in terms of repetition. Awesome things can be awesome the first time it happens, but then that wanes with repetition. I'm a mom, and so the first time that either of my girls said mama, it was this magical moment. It was like the best day ever. But now, after many years of hearing them call me mom, it can feel like this. So the stuff that we seek out, that we think is going to fulfill us for a long time, doesn't actually satisfy us. The Harvard study of adult development began research in 1938. They followed 724 people for 85 years, and researchers wanted to know what makes people thrive. So they followed these people from their teen years to old age, and they gathered all kinds of information about them from their exercise habits to their drinking habits, their marital satisfaction, their deepest worries. They ran all kinds of tests. There were brain scans and blood tests and stress hormone tests. And what this team discovered is that the one thing the healthiest and happiest people have in common is good relationships. Good relationships help people to thrive. So the answer is fairly simple. If you want to be happy and grow and flourish, then cultivate good relationships. But the reality is that having good relationships is challenging for most of us. Earlier this year, the U.S. Surgeon General released this report, and he said that our country is in an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. About one out of every two adults reports feeling loneliness, and it goes beyond a sad experience. It actually affects our health. It affects our longevity. So people who report feeling lonely will more likely experience dementia and heart disease, stroke. The Surgeon General estimates that if you report feeling lonely, it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the impact it has on your health. There are profound consequences to loneliness and isolation. So how do we combat this and build good relationships? We're in our Summer Snowball series, and in this series, we're talking about 
taking small steps to grow and develop ourselves and develop our faith. We're going to be talking about practical things that we can do to create momentum in our lives around these areas. And today we're focusing on developing good relationships and going deeper in our relationship with Jesus. But maybe there are some of you here thinking, uh, I feel good with my level of relationships. I'm content with the friendships that I have. I feel good about the level of community that I'm in. And that's great, but don't mentally check out. Because today we aren't thinking so much about, do I want more friends or how do I get good friends? But rather, we're going to be asking ourselves, am I a good friend? Instead of thinking about, do I have everything that I need and I want from people? We're going to be thinking about, what's it like to be on the other side of me? How do I interact with others? So with that in mind, we're going to look at a passage that's common and pretty familiar to a lot of us. You've probably heard it at a wedding. But we'll see that this passage isn't just for marriage couples, but that it really teaches us principles that apply to all relationships. We're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. It says this, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three stands is not quickly broken. At the time the psalmist is writing this, we think, as far as we can tell, that he's the wealthiest man alive. He has power and fame and money, and the Bible talks about his great wisdom. He has everything that we can think of that would make a person happy. But what Solomon says is that trying to find happiness in any of those things is meaningless because apart from God, everything is meaningless. In the verses right before our passage, verses 7 to 8, Solomon says that selfish isolation is empty. Then in the verses right after, verses 13 to 16, he says superficial fame is empty. But right in the middle of this passage, Solomon gives us practical principles on how to live a meaningful life. Between the extremes of selfish isolation and superficial fame, Solomon talks about what is meaningful and the dynamics of human relationships. So he says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Solomon starts off by saying that it's better to not be alone. In these verses, it's more, most likely that Solomon was thinking about travelers in Palestine. And during that time, it was unlikely for someone to travel alone. People usually traveled in a group because it was safer and because it was just a better experience to travel with someone else. For our context, we don't need someone to travel with us from home to work or home to school. So for us, it would be more like when we have a task to do, like exercising or moving or painting your house. It's easier when you're doing it with someone else because there's a level of accountability and because you split the workload. We have more resolve and more endurance when we're doing it with someone else. Two are better than one because it's exponential. It's not just that one plus one equals two, it's that one plus one equals three. So people who affect our character in a positive way help to make up the difference of what we lack. I'm always looking for people who make me better because I know for sure there's going to come a time where I need to borrow my friend's 
hope in God or borrow their belief in me. So when I'm in a situation where I'm not feeling resilient or I'm feeling discouraged, I can borrow those qualities from my friend who has perseverance and endurance. So the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, am I someone who makes others better? Am I someone who makes others better? Do I support my friends? Do, do they feel encouraged and stronger because of our friendship? Do they feel more resilient because of me? Am I someone who shares in the load of my friends' sorrows and difficult times, not just in the joyful times of their life? Am I someone who makes others better? Then Solomon goes on in verse 10 to say, If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Again, picture travelers on a Palestinian road. It's unpaved terrain. So if somebody fell into a ditch or a crevice, they could easily die from their injury or from exposure. But if they're traveling with a friend, they have somebody who will help pick them up. So the next question to ask ourselves in regards to being a good friend is, am I someone who stands with another in their weakness? Am I someone who stands with another in their hard times or failure? Back in 1996, Peter and I had been dating for about two years. We met in college, in our college ministry group, and after college, we both went to seminary, which is just Christian grad school. We were both doing ministry in our respective churches, We kind of looked like the picture-perfect ministry couple. But I was dealing with something that I knew was not picture-perfect. After about a year of struggling by myself, one day I finally confessed to Peter that I had an eating disorder. I was terrified of how he would respond because this was the late 90s, and I didn't know anybody else that dealt with this, much less talked about it. I wasn't sure would I be judged or condemned, I I thought for sure I was the only one that struggled with it. Maybe Peter would break up with me. I didn't know. But I just knew I couldn't keep it a secret anymore. So I told Peter, and his response was the complete opposite of what I feared. He was supportive and understanding and gracious. He made me feel like I was okay and I was safe. And just being able to confess that to him was the first step in my journey to becoming healthy. Well, fast forward to April of 2020. We're still pretty much in lockdown, and I don't have the distractions of going to work or taking my kids to school or a million other things that normally kept my life busy. So one day I'm watching a YouTube video of this woman talking about her health and fitness journey, and I noticed this eerie similarity between her relationship to food and my relationship to food. And I think because I didn't have the distractions of normal life going on, that I was really able to listen and hear what she was saying. And in that moment, I realized, oh, I don't have an active eating disorder anymore, but I have disordered eating. Because my distorted relationship with food still had this unhealthy control over my life. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I was genuinely shocked to realize this. But looking back, it makes sense because I had so many rules and habits and intense emotions related to food. I did immediately feel shame and disappointment because I didn't want to admit this to myself, much less to anybody else. But this time I didn't wait a year and struggle with it by myself. I told Peter that night, 
And he was just as supportive and understanding as he had been 24 years ago. There was no sense of, wait, what? You're still still dealing with this? Shouldn't you be fully recovered by now? Shouldn't you be further along? Instead, he said, okay, what do you need? How can I help you? What can we do? So we made plans for me to get back into counseling, and I was able to process with my counselor and talk to some friends, and all of that set me on a path toward healing. When we are in our darkest moments, or dealing with weakness or failure, we need friends around us who will come alongside and pick us up. We need friends who won't abandon us, who will support us, someone who fights with us and for us. Sadly, we've become a culture that loves to catch people when they're making a mistake. Everyone has a phone now and can upload videos to social media. And if anything, people hope that their video goes viral and as many people as possible see someone else in their failure moment. But not us. For those of us that want to be a good friend, we provide a soft landing place when other people fail. We show up in their failures and we stand with others in their weakness. Then Solomon goes on in verse 11 to say, Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can they keep warm alone? I think this verse in particular makes people think that Solomon is talking about marriage. But again, with the image of travelers in mind, he's probably talking about surviving the night on their trip. Winter nights in Palestine were cold, and travelers usually had an outer garment, an inner garment, maybe a blanket. But that wasn't enough to keep them warm. Travelers had to rely on the body warmth of their companion to survive. They needed to be able to trust the person they were lying down next to for the night. So the next question to ask ourselves is, am I trustworthy? Am I reliable? Can my friends count on me? I bet all of us want good relationships, but we don't acknowledge the work that it takes to build those relationships. We tend to think that once we establish friendships or intimate relationships, they'll kind of take care of themselves. But really, friendship is a love that's deliberate, and it takes intentionality over time. Friendship requires us to be available, because we need to be there not just when it's fun and easy and convenient, but in the difficult and hard moments. I'm an introvert, and so honestly, this is my life sometimes. Can you say that? I have such good intentions when I make plans. I want to be an extrovert and I want to be super social. But in reality, I'm not. Because I second guess and I overthink. And if we've ever had an awkward interaction, it's because I'm awkward in real life. Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. So if I make plans with someone and then they have to cancel, I'm not mad about it. Friendship takes a high level of effort and intentionality, but often doesn't take a high priority in our lives. It often gets placed on the back burner when we're tired or busy or any other number of excuses. I meet regularly with a small group of women, and during our very first meeting, we set this expectation that we would make our meetings a priority. 
We were going to show up regularly, ready to share authentically about what's going on in our lives, and be present and actively listen when someone else is sharing. We're going to be curious and ask questions. We're going to put in the time and work it takes to build good relationships. And I know for sure that everything that I share with that group is confidential. No random person is going to come up to me later and say, "Oh, I heard about what's going on with you because somebody in your group asked me to pray for you." Nope. Nothing that I share is going to go beyond those women. Nothing that I share is ever going to be weaponized and used against me. I'm never going to walk into a room and have them suddenly stop talking because they were just talking about me behind my back. And if they have anything that they're concerned about in my life, they're going to ask me directly. I can fully trust them. Good relationships are made up by trustworthy people, so we need to ask ourselves: Am I trustworthy? Do I say what I mean and mean what I say? Can people believe me and take me seriously? Am I sincere with my words? Do I take another person's best interest in mind when I make decisions or when I take action? Then Solomon continues in verse 12: Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. During Solomon's time, it was a genuine concern for travelers to be afraid of being robbed or attacked. So another reason people traveled together was for safety, because traveling with others provided security against attackers. You and I might not be fearful of being attacked when we're traveling, but we do have a very real enemy that's actively working against us. An enemy is described as one who feels hatred for. Fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or opponent. I would say this is an accurate description of the devil. You and I have a very real enemy that's relentlessly working for our destruction. But often we picture the devil like this, kind of the way that we see him depicted in the movies, sitting on one shoulder, tempting us to do the thing that we know we're not supposed to do, but we really want to do. In reality, I don't think this is how the enemy shows up in our lives. More often, he shows up as the prosecutor to accuse us of doing something wrong or being something wrong. So we're put on trial for our past mistakes or our current struggles. We're accused of being unqualified, unwise, unworthy, unlovable. And we don't even realize that we're being attacked because the voice that we hear in our head is our own. And our own voice is so familiar and seems so trustworthy. So I can easily fall into this trap of attack by the enemy when I just listen to the voice in my head. But when I share with others and speak out loud the things that I'm thinking, my community is able to speak truth to me. So instead of spiraling down into destructive thinking, I bring those lies to the light, and then my community helps me figure out what's true and what's right. When we're left on our own, it's easy to be overpowered. But when we have others who are fighting with us and for us, we can defend ourselves against the enemy's attacks. In verses nine to the beginning of twelve, Solomon sets up this pattern: two and one, two and one, two and one. And then all of a sudden, in the second half of verse twelve, Solomon says, "A cord of three strands is not quickly broken." 
Solomon is making the point here that a good relationship can't just be two people that are wrapped up in one another. A good relationship has to be wrapped around a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the unifying cord. A relationship that with Christ as its core can withstand more challenges. Because without Jesus at the center, then we put an unfair amount of pressure on these relationships. All of us are designed with a desire to be known and to know others. So I want to connect with others because I want to know them and I want them to know me. This is a good thing. But sometimes we can put too much stock into those relationships. This is true even of marriage. We can put too much expectation and responsibility on our spouse. Because again, there's this desire to be fully known and loved and accepted, but only Jesus can do that for us. But we forget this because our spouse is just right there, already meeting so many of our needs. And so it's easy to believe that they'll meet all of our needs. But they can't, and they were never meant to. And putting that much expectation on our spouse, the expectation that they'll meet all of our needs, is more weight than they can bear, and it's more than what they can provide. Psalm 139 tells us that Jesus knows everything about us. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows our hopes and our dreams. He knows our plans. He knows our weaknesses and our struggles. And he's with us every moment of our lives. No other human can claim this or promise this or deliver this. Only Jesus. But when I'm looking for my spouse or my friends to know me in a way that only Jesus can, I'll always feel disappointment. God made us for friendship. He wants that for us. But not as a means to fill the deepest longings of our soul. Because only Jesus can do that. And when I realize that I'm already fully known and loved and accepted, then I don't put all my eggs in the human friendship basket. I'm not looking for my relationships to fill a void that only Jesus can. So then, it's from this foundation of knowing that we're broken, but accepted by Jesus, already fully loved, completely known, that we can then enter into relationships with people. And that relationship can have Jesus as the core that binds us together. We can find common identity and purpose that we can't find anywhere else. And our relationship becomes exponentially more powerful. Because it isn't just about knowing others and being known. We get to become part of this even larger story. We're running this race together in the same direction, with the same purpose of following Jesus and changing the world for good. Finding these kind of relationships doesn't require some huge radical change. Each of us can probably take a small step into creating some momentum around building good relationships. It starts with just taking an honest look at ourselves and asking, am I a good friend? And to be more self-aware with how we interact with others. And then it could be the next step of interacting with people and connecting with others. You can go to our website and find out about upcoming events. There's so much stuff going on. There's events for men and for women and for kids. We have an upcoming marriage event. There's so much stuff, and you can look at the website. But maybe you're ready to take the next step and get plugged into a group. So you can reach out to us, and we can help you connect to a group. 
But maybe there, you're not ready for a group because there are some things that you need to process. You can check out our care ministry page, and there are so many resources around mental health. And if you need a support group, we can help you find one of those. If you, we can connect you to a counselor, to an organization that's affiliated with our church. There are so many ways that we would love to come around you and support you. My hope for us is that we would be a good friend to others. That we would put in the time and effort and work it takes to build good friendships. But most of all, I hope that we leave here today reminded of how deeply we are loved and known by Jesus. The only one who can fill the deepest longings of our soul. Earlier I talked about Psalm 139. So I'm going to pray those words over us as a declaration of how deeply we're known and loved by Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. God, thank you for these verses that remind us that we are completely known by you, unconditionally loved and accepted. Thank you for this deeply personal relationship that we get to be in with you. But we also know that we're created for community. So help us be intentional about being a good friend and developing those relationships. Help us to be faithful in what you've called us to, to be an active part of community so that we can, together with others, impact our communities and our neighborhoods for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.